Good evening, this is your host, Mr. Dark, bringing you a series of some of the most terrifying, strange, and true short horror stories of crimes, murders, abductions, and experiences. You're listening to the Dark Side Diaries podcast. St. Valentine's Day Massacre. On February 14, 1929, Frank Gusenberg was stabilized in the hospital. He sustained 14 gunshot wounds and was alive just enough to have police question him as to how this happened and whom it was that had shot him. He'd reply, no one shot me, and died three hours later. Gusenberg was the last victim of Chicago's most highly orchestrated mob hit which would come to be known as the St. Valentine's Day Massacre. On the streets of Chicago, gang warfare ruled during the late 1920s. Head gangster Al Capone wanted complete control and did everything in his power by eliminating his rivals. From illegal trades of bootlegging, gambling, and prostitution, mobster rules were rash with violence and often had deadly outcomes. Capone, dubbed public enemy number one, had become the country's most notorious gangster. Capone's longtime enemy, Irish gangster George Bugs Moran, was a career criminal who ran the Northside Gang in Chicago during the bootlegging era of the 1920s. There was constant violence between Capone and Moran for the control of smuggling and trafficking operations throughout Chicago. The two mob bosses had many run-ins over territory disputes in the past. On one occasion, Capone and his gang were having lunch at a hotel in Cicero, Illinois, when Moran and his gang drove six cars past and sprayed the building with more than a thousand bullets. Moran was also intruding on a Capone-run dog track in the Chicago suburbs and had taken over several saloons that were run by Capone, claiming that they were in his territory. Turf wars would escalate between the two gangs, and a $50,000 bounty on Capone's head infuriated the gangster. This would lead to Capone ordering Moran's gang to be destroyed. Leading up to the days of the massacre, it was believed Moran had been working on obtaining a shipment of stolen Canadian whiskey. This was an enterprise that Capone himself was already heavily invested in. The theory is that Capone wanted to lure Moran to his own warehouse under the idea of readying a car to drive to Canada where Capone could then kill him. It was 10.30 a.m. on Valentine's Day of 1929 in the Lincoln Park neighborhood of Chicago's north side. Inside the warehouse were two car mechanics and four of Moran's men with the seventh and last man to arrive, Albert Weinshek, whose arrival signaled the armed men to raid. It's believed Capone's lookouts most likely mistook Weinshek for Moran himself, who was the same height and build. Moran was not there yet due to leaving his Parkway Hotel apartment late. Moran and fellow gang associate Ted Newberry came from the rear of the warehouse from the side street. Noticing a police car approaching the building, both men immediately turned around and hid at a nearby coffee shop. With the stage set, four men raided Moran's Lincoln Park warehouse. Two of the men were dressed as police officers carrying submachine guns, and the other two men were wearing suits, ties, overcoats, and hats. The two fake officers ordered the seven men to line up against the wall then signaled to the two other men they were accompanied with. 
The two killers opened fire with Thompson submachine guns, one with a 20-round box magazine and the other with a 50-round drum. They emptied the entire round of bullets. The men were thorough, continuing to fire after all seven had hit the floor. Two shotgun blasts would follow afterward and would leave the faces of John May and James Clark unrecognizable according to the coroner's report. Witnesses would say they saw the men dressed as police leading the other men at gunpoint out of the garage after the shooting to give the appearance that everything was under control. When police arrived, the only survivors in the warehouse were John May's dog, Highball, and Frank Gusenberg, who would later die three hours later, not giving any details. After the massacre, Moran made a public statement condemning Capone, which would reveal that he was still alive. The St. Valentine's Day massacre proved to be the last confrontation for both Capone and Moran, and the investigation would stagnate through the course of months and years afterward. One man, Fred Burke, who was a known associate of Capone's, was arrested years later for a separate crime and found to be in possession of the guns that were used in the massacre. But again, nothing came about these findings. Capone was later arrested in 1931 for his many other crimes and spent 11 years in prison. And Moran lost so many important men that he could no longer control his territory. Though Al Capone was the prime suspect, till this day, no one has taken credit for the St. Valentine's Day Massacre. Valentine's Day Necrophilia, Jodine Sarin. February 14, 2007. Art and Lois Sarin were celebrating their normal yearly Valentine's festives with dinner and a movie. With the movie finishing around 10 p.m., the Sarins couldn't shake the feeling that something was wrong. It was rare to not hear from their daughter Jodine Sarin every day, and the last they had heard from her was the night before. With no answer from the phone and concern for her well-being, Sarens decided to make a stop at her condo to check on her. Jodine was born in 1968 and grew up in Walton Hills, Ohio. Her family would move after she graduated from high school in 1986 to Carlsbad, California. Even with growing up and having a good upbringing, Jodine needed her family's support regularly due to her mental disabilities. Despite these ailments, she was highly functioning and was able to live independently on her own. According to her family, Jodine was a kind person and volunteered at her church and the Humane Society. She was considered friendly and trusting, and that may have been the demise to her tragedy. Jodine lived independently for nearly 10 years, and on that fateful evening of Valentine's Day 2007, something horrific would happen to her. As the Sarens arrived at Jodine's condo, they knocked on her front door, but she didn't respond. Her parents used their spare key, but the chain was on the latch. With the door partially open, they noticed that all of the lights were on and called her name again, hearing nothing from inside the condo. In a wave of panic, Art was able to break the lock and force the door open. Finally gaining entry to the condo, everything seemed to be in normal order to Art and Lois. With the lights all on, they figured she was either in her bed or the shower. They decided to check her bedroom and noticed the door was slightly open. They would find a half-naked man on top of Jodine in her bed. Upset and embarrassed from the situation, 
Art and Lois immediately left the bedroom and moved to another area in the condo as they assumed they were interrupting an intimate moment for their daughter. The man that was with Jodine put on his clothes and discreetly left never passing Art and poor Lois. Minutes would go by after the man left and there was still no movement coming from the bedroom where Jodine was. Art and Lois still upset by the situation knocked on Jodine's bedroom door but wouldn't receive any answer from within. They slowly opened the bedroom door and nothing could have prepared the parents for what happened next. Entering the room they found Jodine lying motionless on her bed. Art shook and grabbed Jodine placing her on the floor and began CPR attempting to revive her. He noticed his daughter was cold to the touch and that she had been killed hours beforehand. Jodine had been bludgeoned and strangled to death by the man who Art Lewis had seen on top of their daughter in her bedroom. He was Jodine's killer and it wasn't consensual, it was necrophilia. The crime scene investigation was unable to find an entry or exit point for the killer. There were no broken or forced open windows or doors in her condo. Despite this, investigators weren't ready to rule out a forced entry. When Art and Lois left the bedroom, they went to a space at the condo where they were unable to see the bedroom door or front door, indicating that the killer was able to exit there without ever being seen. At the crime scene, unknown male DNA was found, but no matches were found when they ran it through the state database. With no clear sign of how the killer got in except Jodine letting them in, they believed it was most likely being someone she knew. Art would tell police he thought he recognized the man as somebody Jodine may have known through her circle of disabled friends. He said that it was possible it was this man that didn't drive and used public transit or a bicycle. The man identified provided a DNA sample, but it didn't match the DNA found at the crime scene, which would rule him out. It wouldn't be until 2018, over a decade later, when the family and investigators would get a new break in the case. Advanced DNA technology was able to help police identify the man who brutally murdered Jodine. David Mumparito, a transient who was 38 years old at the time, killed Jodine. And in 2011, Mabrito would kill himself. Carlsbad Police Department Lieutenant Greg Coran said, investigators ran DNA evidence found at the murder scene against a DNA database. Mabrito's own DNA wasn't in the system, but DNA belonging to some of his relatives was. The Oceanside Police Department had an unprocessed sample of Mamburito's DNA that they obtained at a traffic stop because he matched the description of a suspect in another case. Mamburito killed himself shortly after the sample was taken and it was never processed. Coran said that when they ran DNA against crime scene evidence in Saren's case, matching technology returned a 1 in 64 quintillion match, meaning there was virtually no statistical probability it could be anyone else's DNA. The family would say they were forever grateful to the Carlsbad Police Department for their outstanding efforts in attaining justice through resolution of this tragic case. This concludes our episode of the Dark Side Diaries. Please remember to follow, like, share, and subscribe for future episodes. 